Hi, everybody. Good evening. Hi, guys. Thank you so much for coming uh, to this Armory Week uh, edition of the review panel. My name is Lauren Rosati. I'm the Assistant Curator of Modern and Contemporary Art here at the Academy. And on behalf of the director, Carmen Brannigan, and the entire staff and board, I'd like to welcome you all here tonight to the review panel. This event occurs once a month here in the National Academy School and is organized in partnership with artcritical.com. It is generously supported by the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs and the New York State Council on the Arts. Tonight's panelists will discuss six exhibitions currently on view in galleries around New York, but I encourage you all to come back to see the exhibitions currently on view in our own museum, uh, which just opened last week. And this includes Anders Sorn, Sweden's Master Painter, Philip Perlstein, Six Paintings, Six Decades, and Edwin Blashfield in the American Renaissance. More information on these exhibitions and other events are in the newspaper on your seats. But now we turn to the review panel, so please join me in welcoming tonight's guests, as well as moderator David Cohen, the publisher and editor of artcritical.com. Thank you very much indeed. Well, it's wonderful to see a full house to discuss a full roster of exhibitions with my distinguished panel. Rather in the spirit of a week in which we're all expected to run around town and see a Biennale and a dozen uh, exhibitions, uh, a dozen fairs, uh, and uh, a Bruxennial, uh, then it seems in the right spirit that we should um, increase by 50% the number of shows we, on average, look at. The review panel, to keep in the spirit of uh, heady and uh, adrenaline-fueled overload. So that is the agenda for this evening. And um, tell me, are you in the review panel for the first time ever? Put your hands up. Let's see. Fantastic. Great. So for your benefit, and also to refresh the memories of our regulars, let me run through our procedure, which is simplicity itself. We are going to show a PowerPoint for half the shows we talk about. The panel will discuss them. And then we take, we take a break while the audience lets off steam, makes some comments, probes us perhaps if they must with some questions. And then we proceed to repeat the exercise and all go home. Uh, or go on to another art fair, as you prefer to do on a Friday evening in March. So that is what we do. And we record it as well. And for the, uh, we record it for podcast later at artcritical.com, which is co-presenter of this evening's program. Um, so a thank you to um, Isaac Durfel who is uh, recording the event for us. Please, if you do make comments, use the mic, wait for the mic, so that we can um, A, hear you, and B, record you, and C, pass on your information to the NSA. So, now it's my pleasurable duty to introduce my guests from uh, your far uh, left, uh, Drew Lowenstein, is a painter, a writer, and an educator. He has taught studio uh, practice and theory at the University of the Arts in Philadelphia and the State University of New York at Purchase. And he has the distinction of having been a contributor to artcritical.com for almost as long as I have, uh, since, uh, I believe, 2001. And his uh, latest piece 
is about to be posted on David Sally. Nora Griffin is associate editor at artcritical.com. She too is a painter and writer. Uh, she in fact has show a work that is on show uh, right now in a group exhibition titled Off-White Desert at the Lewis B. James Gallery on the Lower East Side, which is up through Sunday. And Barry Schwabsky is Art Critic of the Nation. His most recent book on art criticism is titled Words for Art, Criticism, History, Theory, Practice, um, uh, an anthology of writings on art issues and on critics, um, published by Sternberg Press in Berlin. Uh, he's also um, has an anthology, he has also a collection of new poems coming out soon from Black Square Editions later this year, uh, titled Trembling, Hair, Trembling Hand Equilibrium. Um, he is, I should also mention, the co-editor of International Reviews at Art Forum. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your panelists. So we have uh, three abstract painters there, each in their way rather crucially concerned with support as well as surface, to evoke the uh, name of that heady group of um, Maoist Greenbergian French painters. Um, is this, it, seems, it seems quite curious that this should be such a vital issue still. Um, the support. Uh, any feelings about that? Any feelings that the support is what unifies these shows, or at least the first two? A critical interrogation of support, Barry? Uh, I can see it more for Julia Rommel than maybe for the others. I would have said that the big issue was color. The color was the unifying issue of the yeah. three. Okay, color, not support. Okay, but I mean, we have the shape of the canvas in in row, we have uh, a concern with uh, paint on given subjects in Zinsa, and then obviously the sort of interrogation of, of support and frame in, in, in Rommel. Um, but color is a differentiator for you. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I just think it's, it's what they all seem to be the most interested in obviously they all have other uh, issues that enter into their paintings as well but uh, to me that's pretty much what you what you notice first and last with with their work so how uh, let's see if we can characterize color then in the three artists was there is there just a off the off the bat sort of characterization of 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 a distinction of, of, of is there like a word or two, a word for each artist that, that sums up color for them? Uh, you know, I would say that uh, that Zinser. I mean, if you go and look at back through the the images, yes. there are the the. I guess he calls them file studies. These works on paper that are on uh, pieces of uh, file folders that are a little bit different, but all, the paintings are pretty much all two color. Paintings. There's one color for the uh, ground and one other color for the uh, the paint that sits on top of the ground and it very much sits on top of it. It's not about um, 
figure-ground relationship. Well, it is a figure-ground. It's yes. exactly uh, that. With, uh, with Rove, the paintings have the first appearance of being two-color paintings, pretty much. Uh, but when you look at them, it immediately becomes more apparent that there's a lot of hidden color in them, and there's a lot of putting color on and scraping it back, and putting color on and scraping it back. So it's about uh, kind of complexifying and, and uh, sort of burying hints of other colors within colors. Um, with Rommel, she's tending to cover over one color with another and then to, uh, to sort of open it up and, and reveal it at the edges. So, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of my initial yes. read on the three different approaches to, to how to use color. Yes. Nora, Nora Griffin, um, support, relationship of paint to support, or color, which is the... Well, I was sort of thinking about the um, anxiety of influence, how modernism um, is really be coming through in, in all of these uh, three different painters, and how with Rommel, it's really... Um, embedded in the painting itself, and she wears that influence uh, right on the sides of the painting. It's, the painting is sort of being, is struggling to be made, and um, that to me is very interesting. Um, whereas the other two painters, it was almost immaculate. Uh, they, it was almost as if a painting just appeared there, uh, color, support, um, surface. Everything was in such a um, exact proportion to each other that um, the, ob the object lo lost definition and to me became not as interesting as Rommel's paintings. Uh, Rommel's paintings, uh, there's movement in, it, in them. Um, I think her, her color choices are also, the way they're very hard, hard won colors. Um, industrial, actually each, each painter, uh, the color was kind of industrial in different ways. Her colors seemed kind of like a 60s waiting room. There was something that kind of peachy color and that kind of slaty green blue, uh, they seemed they seemed old, but without being nostalgic, which I found interesting too. Yeah, yeah. Um, Drew, are you going to uh, go with the color people, or are you going to go with the shape people, <laughs> the support people? <laughs> what is the what is the strong what is the strong idea that uh, that what what bouncing you from one show to the other here did you feel was? Uh, uh, Gee, what a coincidence, these artists of different generation, different sensibility, um, although two of the three were both included in that uh, uh, catch-all uh, conceptual abstraction from, from 20 years ago and re revisited recently, but different sensibilities nonetheless. Um, is it, does it seem to you that what really distinguishes one from the other here is, is, a, is a different uh, uh, vibe in color or... or or is it um, um, shape? Well, uh, listening to Barry talk about color, I, I have to confess that I'm thinking about it in those terms for the first time now in terms of what links them all together. I think that um, primarily it's shape, it, it's support surface for me. And um, I, I think that uh, Nora puts her finger on it with Rommel, that there's a struggle that she begins to get into with the edge of the surface uh, on the side of the painting, the stretcher bar. 
And um, so for me, uh, all of these artists um, are really about, in particular, the specificity of the edge and how the edge is slipping. And uh, I was particularly interested to see Zinser sort of having a lot of central uh, focus. Most things were contained by the edge, yet when I think back 20 years ago, Zinser is, was specifically focused on the edge in a way not quite different from the way Rommel is dealing with it now. Um, but I found her extremely interesting. And um, she, well, more, 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 on the, more on the edge, I think that Roe is dealing with the edge as well in a sense. Um, he's trying to get the viewer to basically go around the edge. I found myself walking around these paintings that Roe is kind of leading me around the room. And uh, in a sense, these flat paintings, particularly the green one that was shown, Maya, but, but all of them have this, this sculptural quality to them. And of course, he does sculpture. And if you look at the sculptures, you can see that these paintings almost feel as though they're going to suddenly pop in or out, um, fold in, and become this sort of 3D situation. And um, I found that really unusual and um, a suite of paintings by Rowe that I like more than any I've seen before. So. I guess I'm a support person with a heavy emphasis on the edge. Can I uh, jump in uh, to kind of say something to that? I'm very curious about the fact that you both talk about struggle with regard to Rommel because I don't see it particularly. That is, uh, I see that she uh, is taking great care with what she does and that she is engaged in a kind of uh, kind of measuring and remeasuring uh, and reconsidering of the canvas and of the size and shape of the canvas that is thoughtful, but uh, it it doesn't. I don't see much evidence of exactly struggle. Uh, well, isn't that because it's, it's more of a cerebral struggle than a visceral struggle? It's not a, it's just, obviously, these are incredibly cool and relaxed and suave and confident finished results. But when one, I think what, what Nora and uh, Drew are discerning is that when one um, interrogates the, um, the elements that are brought together in these cool statements, um, they reveal some anxieties about edge support well i think they're also they're, they're very physical paintings um i just I'm sort of imagining her making them you know what what she would have to do to move it around restretch it unstretch it and the stapling and also the way the staples are visible there's something um a kind of violent about that having a staple be kind of visible and kind of in, invisible and um, and then having this buttery surface and that that tension to me was also well, something to think about. about. Casualness, it's, it seems the opposite to me. I don't know how, how how one could determine whether stapling, an act of stapling was violent or casual, but uh, to me. <laughs> it's, it's almost like she was, she was trying to pin it down. Like it's sort of like I could see her there a little bit, whereas um, Rowan Zinzer weren't there, which is not 
a good or a bad thing, but just like they weren't present for me there. So. Oh, I mean, somehow uh, there's something that to me it's very related, which is the fact that um, the the paintings are made of multiple uh, canvases uh, and they're that are combined. And there's always a sense that each one is a fragment of something, but the whole that the combination of fragments adds up to is not, is not the whole of which they were fragments. And so I think it, it challenge you, challenges you as if you were to kind of be very active about how you kind of put the painting together for yourself. Uh, in in a similar way, and that that somehow goes with this sense of uh, you know stretching, unstretching, uh, restretching, stapling, and so on that um, that Rommel's involved with. Yeah, yeah. It seems to me, yeah, I, I can see Barry's um, skepticism about the idea of Rommel being somehow um, a provisional struggler. I mean, obviously, provisionalism and struggle are. Uh, uh, at the opposite ends of, uh, at the attitudinal spectrum. Uh, but um, I like the idea, though, in Roe, I, mean, I certainly get the, the feeling in Roe, um, uh, not of uh, the existential, angst-ridden, abstract expressionist struggling, but of um, the, the movement that's in the, Im the, the movement that's in the image, visually, um, somehow being like a trace of the process of moving that shape around and arriving at the shape of those um, canvas elements. So that the, the movement between figure and ground, between uh, the circle actually in the, in, within the gestalt of our own vision and the process of, of, of their making, they seem to all be very much in sync in those images. And that, well, that gives them a pleasing there, there is a unity, and that's, that's that pleasing nature you're talking about in row. Um, that unity is ultimately lacking in Rommel, which I think is her strong suit, which gives her the tension. In a sense, that's really the hook, the tension between what's going on on the edge of the canvas and her sort of fussing to some extent with it. If you don't want to consider it a struggle, it's certainly a sort of incremental sort of mini, mini battle of reconsiderations. Her primary move is that of a mono, uh, 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 of painting monochrome paintings. And that's really what she does, and those big surfaces are absolutely beautiful. And then she moves it off to the side, and that begins to be what it's about. And for the viewer, I believe that's the hook. And that's where it gets very interesting. Um, there's not necessarily a uni uh, like a uniformity of approach um, with all the paintings uh, regarding the edge, but that's the fun for the viewer and sort of unpacking and seeing how she is somehow the staples migrate from the edge to to the front of the surface, which is which is quite interesting. And sometimes the stretcher bar is exposed, and uh, that creates a whole new level of of tension. And I think that some of these ideas had previously been explored by perhaps some other painters, but she's doing it in uh, a sort of uh, more dialogue-y, less robust way if you consider somebody like Marcaccio from years ago who's 
wood stretcher bars actually exploded from the edge of the canvas and became this sculptural element that started to meander onto the wall and become something, you know, unto itself. So, but of course, the dynamics, the dynamics of the age has been within modernist painting from, for a long time, hasn't it? I mean, with the painters like Olitsky just, just doing the age at times, Joe Bear, for instance, just doing the side. Um, so there's, it's a, a well-trodden path, isn't it, within modernism to um, really push all of the activity to the edge? Well, mentioning Olitsky, I, I would love to hear what John, where John's answer is on that. My understanding is that perhaps Olitsky might have been somebody who he was interested in. He was very edge-oriented um, in a similar way years ago, and he seems to have resolved that and moved on. And I would, I would love to know how he sees these edge people just yeah, at this he's, point. He's very, you know, much the odd man out here in that sense. There's a kind of, in a way, a kind of willful dumbness about how the, the thing is just there on the support and uh, contained by it and it's not going anywhere. Um, and I think that obviousness somehow seemed to be part of what Zinsser was going for in the paintings. And, and he succeeds totally in that respect. I think that there's this sort of um, honesty of approach that he has where he's saying, I'm, pu I'm putting this down, it's in the front. I almost found it strangely, I, I don't speak in these ways, but almost like one of those, in quotes, Zen experiences. I felt that I was in the moment with him. He was being very upfront about what he was doing. He wasn't overreaching. He was saying, let's go through this discipline together. And, um, and, and I thought that was really generous in a, in a sense. I, I, almost, I, don't know, I, almost, I found that almost kind of unbearably uh, factual in a way. Um, and there's something also about the way the paint was, um, it wasn't exactly oil paint, it was almost a kind of like an amped up um, uh, quality to the pigment. So it was like paint as plastic a little bit and um, something like it was it was an index of like this is what paint is it's this blob this 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 substance and um and then with the folders is it was this he gave us a little hints of this is kind of paint can be emotional here's here's a little collage element here's paint over a picture of <coughs> joseph boys andy warhol kind of nodding to history but um i i i thought like he should have picked one side. It was like he wanted to have his cake and eat it. So he wanted both. He wanted paint as fact and then also paint as this mis, mis, metaphor, um, yeah. Yeah, paint as metaphor, paint as a, you know, part of history. Well, paint actually um, becomes a fully resolved sculptural form in, in, uh, in Zintz's work. That's what's striking to me. I mean, the, the formal similar, similarities are much more to minimalist painting than they are to our modernism in the, in the way that both Rommel and, um, and, and Rowe seem to, seem to be much more. Um, one can make that distinction if but it's did, a useful did, one still. Did anyone feel as I did that somehow uh, there were, within just the paintings that Zinsser had, there were kind of two types uh, and there were more um, grid-oriented ones and then there were ones with more sort of 
curly brush strokes, sort of a la uh, Ryman or a la a certain part of Ryman. And um, I, I found myself much more engaged by the, the Ryman-esque ones than by the, um, uh, the, curly the group, by, then by the gridded ones. And I'm not... You seem to actually make exactly. grids out of that Ryman sort of curl, though. That's what was kind of interesting in a way sometimes. But it seemed, yeah, Drew talks about his being um, of not overreaching. I, I, I almost felt, to be honest, I mean, I, I, I find that um, uh, Zinsser is uh, uh, a very thoughtful person and a great writer, I think. And um, I, I've, I've always enjoyed looking at his paintings. But it didn't seem to me actually... Uh, they, they seem to me to be, as I mean, Barry is noticing two motifs. I, I, I noticed basically one or two sort of strong ideas in that show, but it wasn't that the that idea was elaborated in a radically different way from picture to picture. Um, I, I felt maybe a little thinness at times in in the work, but good good at what it does, and that, I, that's why I find myself particularly gravitating towards the file pieces because because there's, there seemed to be a real um, poetry and charm there that uh, uh, I think the show, his work in general, needs. So I think uh, it's good to see that side of his heart on display, as it were. Well, I think he surrendered at one other point in which he shows a, a side of his heart, which is in those sort of latticey, Ryman-esque uh, pieces. A couple of them, he just kind of surrenders and they... Um, they take on the life of their own and they become sort of like these fiery lattices and they take on this kind of dancing figurative um, uh, sort of um, rhythm. And uh, I, I was a little bit surprised by that, uh, almost that the sort of um, the factualness that Nora was talking about kind of got away from him and they became unruly and expressive. And I, I found that really surprising, um, but I still liked it. Um, so, so what is uh, what do we think Roe is really doing then? Let's let's go to Roe. You know, I'd rather the panel describe them to you. Um, sorry. Let's let's when we when we let's evoke in the mind's eye of the viewer. As Ruskin did not have uh, color slides, so um, Baudelaire didn't. So let's use language as they did, and we'll we'll get it. Very quickly, I think that what Rose Rose trying to do is, um, in a sense, compress sculptural elements into a painting and have the painting uh, um, behave uh, or, or in that way. In other words there's this sense that um, the painting is turning in on itself and is going to extend itself into uh, a multi-dimensional, a third or perhaps sort of fourth dimensional situation. And I, uh, uh, I found that pretty moving. Yeah. I did not find them moving. Um, right, there's a lot I, of over here. <laughs> Um, I don't, I, and it's not, it's not, I, I like some of the, the color combinations. I like, I love red and black, um, that kind of turquoise, um, and black, white and black, good job. But, um, 
the, the sort of, it's kind of like the, the roughness, the roughness and the um, composedness of it were, can, they canceled each other out and um, they, they just, I don't know, I just kept thinking like this is, it's like this formalist trap, like they were trapped in their own formalism. Um, and it's interesting to think about Roe and Rommel, like maybe like this would be Rommel in 30 years, or I don't know, or what was, I mean, I, I was looking up Roe's work from the past and I, I liked it. Um, you know, I don't have, I'm sorry that I haven't seen his work over like 20, 30 years, but um, it just was, it, it felt, um, it felt like they, they were so contained in, them, in themselves and so, so mechanical in a way that it, there was a lot of touch there, but it just, it, I, I separated the, the artist from the work itself. And when that happens, it felt like it, this thing had just appeared like it was the side of a car or something. Well, don't you think he was really after that degree of neutrality? I mean, I, 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 would, uh, I would have thought, Barry, if, if anything, the, the problem with Rowers uh, is that it's that pleasingly distressed uh, quality that um, is, is a bit arty. But I, I mean, I, um, I, I wouldn't think of them as being mechanical. Would you? Uh, well, I don't, I, don't, I don't see what's the problem with the, the surface. And uh, I think that surface works really well with, I guess, what you could call his, his imagery, if that's the, if that's the right word. Uh, I think it's even, you know, in a certain sense, it's a mistake to say, oh, well, this is a red and black painting. Yes, it's a red and black painting. But, you know, like, what, what about that bit of blue along the edge uh, there on the left uh, panel? I mean, that just kind of zings out at you in such a great way. And that's something that's only possible because of the uh, kind of layered and abraded uh, nature of the surface. And then the way the, uh, you know, the black shapes push against the, uh, the edges and push against each other um, the way that the, uh, you know, the red uh, uh, kind of elliptical cutoff forms seem to want to, to go and, and meet each other and become a single kind of oval, but, uh, but they can. I just, I just find it has a tremendous force and seems uh, very much kind of uncontained uh, both by the edges and by the by the plane, and that's that's what I like so much about it. I guess I mean I was thinking about Al Held's uh, alphabet paintings and just how um, on the surface they could they, these could that could be like a comparison with this work, but um, I don't get a sense of there's something beyond the painting here. There's for me there isn't an intimation of infinity. Where with Al Hell's paintings, there's so much space. Um, you just like feel it, the space that he's created. Whereas that that blue line to me is just that's design. That's a design element. It doesn't feel like a painting element. It seems to me um, it actually introduces the element of illusion, and that it seems to me that uh, by by cropping, rather like in the way Alex Katz and indeed Al Held in those alphabet paintings does. The, 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 the radical crop in, in Roe combined with that, that thin blue line giving the, the illusion of like a, the inside of that big floating donut means that it, it has this strange, um, it could, the scale could be anything. It could be an enormous thing. Uh, it could be a, a universe almost. And that 
it's, it's got some dimension to it. And, it, and the, the distressed surface contrasting with the, um, the mat of the, the, the circular form um, actually also helps give it depth. Do you, do you, did you feel that they were illusionistic or that there was some well, sense I, of I, space? I, I do feel that Held is illusionistic. Um, I don't feel that Roe is. Um, they slip into it almost, but I don't think he goes there entirely, and I don't think he needs to because of all the traces of underpainting and these lines that go from edge to edge, which are not the main ingredients, but again, these traces, all suggesting this um, very deep interior and this internal pressure that pushes out on the edges, and again, it, it will just kind of fold over and suddenly kind of blow up into this three-dimensional um, object. So uh, I, I was, actually, I, I think that Rommel's first piece, the very small one in the show, has this illusionistic aspect that um, at first it looks as if there is um, two, yeah, as if there are two, um, two paintings, but in fact it's only one. And if you, if you kind of walk along the side of it, there's this trompe l'oeil situation that, that sort of pops out, but of course it's not there. And uh, that occasional, that, that also is something that, uh, that, that's happening in Roe, but no, he, he doesn't actually push the push into the, into illusionism the way uh, the way Al Held might. I, I would question in in Rommel whether the they're intriguing and they're elegant, but I, I I'm not sure whether once you get beyond that they're intriguing and elegant and try to make any visual sense for yourself out of what she's really doing, whether um, the little local decisions she's making actually do add up to um, any kind of convincing formal statement. I, but maybe that's just part of also of her her art ideology, as uh, you could say. I mean that 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 the, these are not uh, intended to work as uh, as color field or minimal abstract paintings are supposed to work. That they're they're more about the attitude of their making. Um, did. Would you want to defend them, Nora, as being um, satisfying visual experiences, each one in, in themselves? In um, I just liked there was a kind of a simplicity about them that they were trying to solve a problem. Um, and for me, it, was, it seems like a historical problem of how to make a monochrome painting, which is also like how to make a painting just in general. And um, they just, they seemed kind of more rooted in history than the other artists. Um, talking about. She seems it was kind of like rooted down in something. Um, and I mean, would I want to sit in front of them for a long time? I, I don't, I mean, they're not, I don't know. It's, I think the color does give off more. There's something um, more giving about that color, um, that surface. I was thinking about uh, Bryce Martin's um, oil and wax paintings from the 60s. And it's interesting also his, his painting uh, for Bob Dylan and um, Pearl and how they're paintings for people and her paintings, Rommel's paintings also seem kind of like they're paintings for people in a sense. I mean, she I think she names some of them for someone too. Um, uh, for Cal Ripken, who's a baseball player, I think. Yes. But that's just, it's kind of interesting 
um, to think of a, like a painting for a person or like a painting as a person in a sense and color standing in for a person too, which, which also seems like a very modernist thing to me. Do you buy this, Barry? Uh, well, it's funny that all, all up until the last word, which was that it seems modernist to me, and others, when you say color as a person, I start to think, oh, like um, Byron Kim and his kind of, can we even say postmodern turn on uh, monochrome painting to make it a portrait. Uh, there's a kind of uh, density and a particularity to the color in her paintings that share something with, with his. And I think it does give them this sort of, uh, a, yeah, a personality that is somehow uh, different from the kind of absolute statement that a, a, a more modernist kind of painter would possibly be aiming at. Well, I'd like to see where she goes with this, whether uh, she turns uh, inward and um, runs with the monochromes, which she does so well, or whether um, she's going to explore this idea of edge, which I think is extremely fertile ground. And um, I think a lot of people are interested in it. And um, I, you know, I, I, I think we've all seen it around, people basically pointing, uh, painting on the back uh, of painting, showing stretcher bars, um, you know, uh, deconstructing um, the paintings, the canvas, getting into the threads and the weaves and all the rest of this. So I think that she's uh, pointing some attention to this and I think she's got a couple of different ways to go. Whether she can synthesize them both together uh, remains to be seen. Okay, fantastic. Let's, uh, let's open this up to the audience now and uh, get some feedback. Um, I can just, from where I'm, just within the front rows, I can see another review panel, possibly. I mean, it's always, uh, dis it's always, distinct it's always uh, very touching when people who've been paid to sit up here come back for fun on, uh, on their own terms. A, a little shout out and welcome to Stephen Westfall, Dennis Carden, Christina Key, and Nancy Prinsenthal. Uh, past and hopefully future review panelists who are with us this evening. But uh, don't feel just because you've been shouted out that you're ob obligated to uh, join the discussion. Very welcome to hear from anybody. So please do wait for the mic and Carol will find you. The dichotomy that you pose between shape and color, uh, I was wondering if it would still hold up if you didn't have one or the other. In other words, is the shape only evident because of the color, and is the color only evident because of the shape? And if you remove one from the other, what are you left with? Yes. I, I wasn't actually presenting, I don't feel I was presenting a dichotomy of shape and color within the artists. I was talking to the panelists as to what was the unifying concern, the strongest unifying concern among the three painters uh, to deal with uh, critically. But I think as far as um, dealing with shape and color within the individual's works, that your point is totally well taken. I mean, you, 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 we wouldn't notice the one without the other. I don't the point, because uh, unless uh, there was some color that filled your 
entire visual field. It would have to have a shape. And, uh, and so I don't exactly understand the question. To me, if, for instance, if you look at paintings by Yosef uh, Albers, uh, personally, I think he, you know, he didn't really care about the square. He didn't have anything to say about the square. The square was a device that was for him a way, the best way to present what he's interested in about color. When you look at another artist, they're, they're much more interested in the shape and the color is, is a way of presenting to you uh, the shape that they feel has a certain uh, import. And uh, so to me, it, it makes sense to ask the question, well, which, which is, uh, so to speak, uh, the device for getting at something and what's the something that the person wants to get at? And incidentally, I, I, it wasn't shape that I identified as being a possible commonality between the three artists, but support, which is a different issue. The support in row takes the shape of shape, but um, it's support. Yes. I'm going to leave it to, to you, Carol, to find who you want to find. Yes, you went back to support. I have no idea what you mean. I mean, I'm a painter myself, and I used to write about art, and mm -hmm. I don't understand what this word means, and I kept listening to see if so I could figure it You're a painter, and you write about art, but you want to know what a support is? I don't understand what you mean by the word support. Well, I, it would be a canvas if you paint on canvas. It would be the floor if you paint on floor. It would be your lovely T-shirt if you paint it on your lovely T-shirt. That would be the support. Oh, okay. Okay, good. Thank you. I'm glad to have helped. Great. Okay. Um, I really, actually, I like all three of the artists, um, uh, their work, uh, and I, but I thought the discussion was very interesting, sort of dividing between the question of, um, well, I think uh, Nora used the word struggle, and I might use the term labor. Uh, which is maybe something different than, you know, labor is tied to process. A process doesn't have to be a struggle, and that is to say fraught with existential um, uh, crisis, uh, uh, depending on the outcome or something, but labor is exposed as something that's a kind of truth or something like that. And I keep, but I keep th thinking that they, that they all, that the three of them are all very much involved in, in each of them in an un, uh, a strikingly, almost ironically focused way with pastiche. And I was just conferring with my neighbor, who I trust implicitly with her history, Nancy, uh, as to whether it was Jameson that wrote that sort of indictment of pastiche as being uh, 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 paradigmatic of uh, uh, late capitalist de decadence um, in, uh, uh, in some essay. And then I kept thinking that, that well, if you're going to have a deep conversation, and irony is going to play a part of it at all um, in a healthy way, it's, uh, pastiche is something that's almost impossible to avoid. So I'm just wondering if anybody on the panel thinks that, uh, one, that these artists are working with pastiche, and two, whether that's a, constr uh, a constraint in their work or, way, or a way of opening up a, uh, a, a conversation, even with sort of minimal means. Um, I, saw, I, I saw pastiche more in Zinsser's work. I didn't really think about it particularly with the other two, but uh, you know, I'm I'm willing I'm willing to be talked into thinking that that there's pastiche in all of them. Briefly, uh, <coughs> Rose's relationship, you know, clear relationship to Held, and in these uh, polygonal paintings to uh, Nolan and Ron Davis, and uh, and uh, uh, Julia's um, uh, 
you know, sort of recapitulation of some aspects of, of Robert Ryman and and task member and by task giving oriented. a definition of support. Let me patronize another uh, audience member by saying that uh, uh, emulation and dialogue and quotation even are not pastiche. Pastiche is uh, a humorous uh, uh, and critical uh, relationship with um, a very well-known um, other who's instantly identifiable in the work. So I would say none of these artists is involved with pastiche. If one of them is, then I concur with Barry that um, I think John Zinser is engaging in a kind of humorous exchange at times with, with Ryman and with, with some of the supports of us. But I don't think that, um, I don't think there's any way that you can say that because Al, because Roe reminds you of Held, it's therefore a pastiche of Held. I think that would be overstepping. What do, what do other panelists say? Well, I, I think that if Zinser is involved in pastiche, he certainly neutralizes it. One of the things that a painting seems infinitely capable of doing is absorbing um, every problem that uh, people think is going to uh, kill it and uh, just uh, keep on moving on. And uh, I think that uh, Zinser, in his sort of matter-of-fact pre presentation of uh, painting elements, uh, is, is able to uh, neutralize any kind of sort of, um, you know, emulating sort of, you know, second, third generation sort of kind of looks like, therefore is, um, pastiche, but I think that pastiche is um, something that some artists may find at some point um, in the next few years, something that they can uh, breathe new life into. I don't, I don't think it's a dirty word. Uh, okay. I, I didn't say it's a dirty word, no, I just no, said I, it's the wrong not, word. Not, 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 to, not to you, David, um, but even if it's not relevant here, um, at some point, um, I hope to hear a conversation about it. Okay. Excellent. I see there were lots more hands. Let's take a couple more. Uh, all right, it's passed. Um, okay. I, I wanted to address something in Zinser's work that I don't think, uh, I think Drew mentioned something about um, a, a Zen kind of thing, but I think that the, the paintings are incredibly performative. In they all have an immediacy. They're all one-off. They are, I think there, there's, this tremendous anxiety of, you know, one performance, he has one chance to get it right. I think the details of the way the pain is put down, rather than just being uh, just the facts thing, I think they're just very subtle in terms of the way the, you know, it is a figure ground thing, and I think the way the, the, the paint interacts with the ground, perform, you know, constructs other you know, figures in its interaction. Um, I just think there's a real incredible tension that none of the other, uh, the other two painters, uh, you know, they're, they're, they do have what Steve said is kind of a, a, a labor. Um, I mean, they're interesting in the painting, but I think that, that the Zinser has this incredible tension that, that um, nothing else has. Okay, thank you. Um, I think in fairness to the rest of the room, we'll come back to that very distinguished row in a moment, but let's, uh, let's go back. Uh, I just wanted to put a footnote on the shape color controversy question. Um, Margaret Livingston's research in Harvard on 
uh, neuroscience on the way the eye sees, has come up with the um, theory that we've got actually two systems, and one is luminosity and the other is color, and they're not the same. And actually, the luminosity uh, system is the one that responds to uh, dark and light. And if uh, we're in a snowstorm, you know, we don't see anything because we don't have any contrast. And uh, if this weren't true, uh, people who are colorblind, of course, couldn't navigate a black and white uh, photograph or the world. Um, it turns out, I guess, evolution-wise, we are more dependent upon shape and contrast than we are color. Um, that's the most important one. Color is important, right. but it say, doesn't thank you. serve. Thank you. It is an interesting footnote. Thank you very much. And um, another hand at the back there? Yes. Uh, um. Hi. Thank you very much. I'll be quick. It's just a general statement. Um, I haven't seen the shows, so it's just general about the um, emphasis on the edge and the emphasis on support that one does see around a lot today, and especially in younger painters. And it can produce wonderful work, but it worries me just slightly sometimes, because I wonder about the implications of, um, you know, whether a concern for the edge doesn't indicate a kind of exhaustion with the center, uh, the way, you know, cities sometimes <laughs> decay. And um, if, the, if the content of a painting is traditionally within the center, it doesn't mean that one can engage at the edge, but it does raise those questions, I think, in today's, uh, you know, practice that the one sees around. Thanks. Well, perhaps it's a way back into the center. Yeah, there'll be some urban renewal as a result of this suburban. But there's, there's of course, a limit to where the, how far the sprawl can go if, uh, if one starts at the um, edge. But, that, but uh, that's a very interesting, it's a very potent metaphor, uh, Christina Key. Thank you. Um, okay, let's take uh, two more at the front, I think, um, Carol, uh, this lady here, and then Suzanne. Wait for the mic, if you would. Just very briefly, I always think of the um, interest in edge having to do with the history of the process. Painting. That's yeah. Right. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think just uh, I, I think this is what you're talking about. There's something with Rommel that kind of recalls uh, those early paintings of Bryce Martin, where you'd see the uh, traces of the previous layers. Uh, and so on. Uh, and again, I don't think it's a, a pastiche-like uh, relationship. I think that um, that there's a shared interest in in evidencing uh, that kind of process. I wanted to ask about uh, the 1960s. It seems as if this intense jamming of properties and problems from the 60s is being revisited. Have you any thoughts of why that's occurring? Right, yes. Well, that would, that would possibly lead us back to the pastiche issue, but it, would, uh, uh, it certainly also brings us back to actually where I started with allusions to support Safas and to... Yeah, thank you. I, we, thank you. Please, thank you. Uh, to, to being... To being is, are we witnessing a kind of neo-formalism? Because that actually binds this lady's question with Christina Key's concern, in a way, and in a way, um, Stephen Westfall's notion of, of pastiche. Are we, are we dealing with anxieties about 
are, are, are all these three painters unwittingly participating in a, in a, in a sort of collective revisiting of classic 60s, 70s formalism? Maybe those issues were never, uh, never resolved. resolved, and therefore there's still issues that we have. Yes. I don't know if they're universal, but they're, they're, I don't, I'm not comfortable with that, but I, let's just say, you know, the 60s. Uh, even, even I was alive in the 60s, it's not that long ago, I mean. <laughs> Perhaps my question will address that. Because, Nora, you said something about um, right after Drew made the Zen comment or the Buddhist comment about John Zinser's work, you said he seems to want to have painting as fact and painting as history, and that you didn't think he could have both. And I was interested in that idea of having both. And it struck me, if we go back to the old Zen idea of first there is a mountain, then there is no mountain, then there is. And that also seemed a way of of addressing the, the truth of support surface, which I always thought was a really good lesson, but then one might proceed to real world things from it. So I, my question is, can't we have both? Or? I think you can have both, or that just show, maybe have more of a struggle then. It sort of was like, well, then this, this and this, and was representing both of them. And, um, Well, yes, but interesting, Nora, I mean, a Shakespeare sonnet can be about a dark lady, and it can also be about language, and, and um, it can be about you know, several other things, too. And it, it doesn't have to be about the one while it's being with the other. So um, art is a great form of confection. And the struggle could also be between paintings. And he makes a painting, he struggles, and then he approaches the next painting and makes it that the struggle may be in the discipline of the thought and the preparation. Fantastic. Once we open the issues of support, surface, color, formalism, pastiche, etc., we could be here all night and it would be a very pleasurable night. But <laughs> I would be delighted to leave it there, but I think it would be insulting to um, our next artist. So let's dim the lights and, well, this really is a, a, an unexpected way in which these shows have had of uh, resolving themselves into little groups here. I and mean, it seems that uh, um, when, we, when we were choosing the shows to talk about this evening, it, it seemed that we were, had a, a real spread geographically, um, Lower East Side up to the Upper, upper East Side via Chelsea, that we had uh, different generations, different sensibilities. And yet, uh, as soon as you put a PowerPoint together and as soon as you decide how to structure an evening, it seems to fall into the, the neat big shapes concerned with the edge half and the uh, rags and the lore and lure of the studio as the workplace in the second half, almost a sort of caricatural. Um, let's have the lights up so that uh, you can enjoy our beauty and uh, as well as our genius. Yes. Um, uh, and yet, can you put the lights up, please? Oh, oh, I see. Okay. Oh, it's just up at the top here that we're in darkness. I think that's it. Not to worry, not to worry. Uh, pretend it's the radio. Good. 
Um, actually, uh, yes, yes. This review panel is actually a, a pastiche of a British radio program called uh, Critics Forum. I think as we're ever approaching our 10th anniversary, it's a good moment to come clean about that. And um, luckily, uh, luckily the BBC doesn't care and we won't get sued. But, um, and all ideas come from somewhere. So, Leslie Wayne, well here we really do have um, a solution of the support and surface conundrum, do we not, Drew? Does she have, um, is this an ingenious solution to that problem and a way forward to a new kind of painting, or is this a bit of a gimmick? Well, I, I don't think it's either. Um, but I do think that she has, uh, I mean, it is sort of amazing idea, sorry, paint as its own support. And, uh, and amazingly, she's doing it with oil. And I think for those of you who are painters, if you had to conceive of doing something like this, the idea of doing it in acrylic would be much a much easier sort of a uh, thing to do. Um, um, so, is it sculpture hanging on a wall? Well, no, it's painting, and we know it's painting because she has been so involved in this before she settled into this recent um, hanging rag um, object, and they were on these. Um, planks or wood or canvas surfaces and they were sliding off and they were sliding into each other and creating these kind of tectonic kind of mashups. And it seems as though she could pretty much do anything um, with oil paint that she'd like. Um, and she shows that here um, with, with these, the variety of surface and composition that she's managed to, uh, to construe. Barry, did you get a similar sense of her mastery? Um, well, I, I wouldn't deny it, but I don't think that's uh, exactly, uh, it's, not, it's not something that necessarily interests me. Uh, I think that, um, you know, I've been, I, I, I'm quite interested in her work and I followed it, uh, but, in this case, there was something that didn't convince me about most of the work, and that was that somehow it seemed, uh, in an odd sense, too, too representational. In other words, uh, what the, it was as though she were rendering uh, what she was also actually doing. And it, there was something that seemed kind of redundant uh, in that to me, maybe I would have liked it better with much less mastery in a certain sense or with greater simplicity. Uh, on the other hand, the thing that, uh, a thing that charmed me about it was that, um, and I don't remember whether it was you or Drew brought up this question of, well, are they sculptures or paintings? They're definitely paintings because they, they actually have stretchers behind it. If you, if you like got bent down and looked up from underneath, under the skirt of them, so to speak, uh, you could see that they were actually on uh, these kind of stretchers, and there was something very funny uh, to me about that. And I would have liked uh, 
and maybe it's not funny to her, but um, I, would, I, I wish it were, and I would have liked more of that kind of uh, humor to come out, which I think came out in her work more in the past when uh, there was more of an open play between the, rect uh, uh, the rectangle and all these things kind of coming off the rectangle in these crazy ways. Yeah, I think though that just technically speaking, by uh, having an armature doesn't, doesn't I mean, it, it, in, in a way, if, if one were to think of them as sculpture, um, then the frame would be their armature. It would just be the technical means by which they come about. I, it seems to me um, that they are fun and intriguing and, and, and uh, jolly, but when I try to engage with them one by one, um, I found myself coming away disappointed because as sculptures, they are rather literal, rather illustrational of rags um, or cloth. They're not, they don't actually achieve their sculptural shape as a result of the painterly activity of their own making. And then as paintings, they don't have a, a support that enables me to really engage with the paint as, as, a, as an image, because the image is the sculpture. So for me, I find that to be a very striking technical problem. I think it, they are ingeniously made, and they are, they are fun. And, um, but I just, I just sense from her track record and from her that um, her mind is in a higher place than just entertaining me. And so I was left somewhat flummoxed by this show. Nora. Yeah, I, I, I agree with everything you're saying. I, there's something um, almost disturbingly uncanny about seeing just all that amount of paint without support. It's like seeing skin or flesh like off the bone, um, just hanging on something. It, something uh, almost creepy about it. Um, fun, uh, I don't know, you said, I didn't think of them as, as fun really, but um, kind of, I, I, uh, so crafted in a sense too. Um, I mean, I don't know technically how she did it, but um, I don't wanna be thinking about that too much as I'm looking at it. It's just, it's kind of a, a burden to me in front of my viewing pleasure. And, um, and I just kept thinking about like skin without a body or something, just thinking about if a painting is a body, what, what is this? Um, like that figure at the bottom of Michelangelo's Last Judgment of, uh, yes, um, or it's almost as, um, as if we found just the right angle to look at it, it would all like a Holbein suddenly resolve itself into um, a more legible image. Yes. Drew, um, you're hearing some skepticism then. Defend your woman. <laughs> Right. Well, uh, I, I understand that people would like it to be a bit more humorous, and um, I mean, it, it's it's clearly not a Klaus Oldenburg sculpture, although uh, you know, almost in a Dwayne Hansony kind of way. If you kind of look at it for a second, it could almost enter that point of view. But no, she is dealing with a kind of like fine, uh, fine art uh, painting compression style, and she is um, uh, creating these things that are literal, but even though they're representations of something, you know, sort of um, painting can do that too. 
Painting is allowed to do that. I think that um, there is an interesting variety between these pieces, however. And if you look at the surfaces, sometimes there's this sort of like Richter-esque uh, way of going about it. And uh, other times uh, a particular uh, surface may look more, you know, like a de Kooning, or then she's doing these candy stripe things, which really kind of push it in terms of taste and what we're willing to accept. Um, is it just too sort of like, you know, candy-like? Um, so, you know, they, uh, they're, they're quite delicate, some of them, and uh, I was impressed by how she was kind of like slicing them stylistically as far as the surface goes. They are somewhat haunting. They do look like the flayed kind of, you know, Michelangelo sort of holding up, uh, you know, the, in, in The Last Judgment, the flayed flesh. Um, but that they can have all of these different associations, I think, to some extent uh, shows that there is some power in, in her choice of sticking with this one uh, theme of, of the, the hung rag. Right. Well, let's go from the, 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 the rags of uh, Leslie Wayne to the rags and all the other studio detritus of uh, Gideon Bock. Um, our one, well, I was going to say our one representational painter for the evening, but then we could be here for the rest of all night talking about what is and what is not representation. After all, there is the illusionary and uh, I even said the illustrative aspect of Leslie Wayne. Um, Nora, did you find yourself with Gideon Bock um, feeling that you were in his space looking at the world his way? Uh, did you feel yourself... Uh, um, um, what, what, what was your level of emotion? Was it a window into a different world, or was it a, an abstract experience with, uh, with this found image? What no, I mean, it was, it was a window into a world which is a painter's world, so I was able to engage with it, um, and just on, on a personal um, level, because he, it's kind of the, the, they're the paintings of a, of a fan, too, and, um, and if you, if you happen to share taste with, with Gideon Bach, it it's, feels very personal to encounter his work. Um, so I, I was really moved by it, actually, and especially his paintings of uh, Lou Reed, which I assume were made sort of after Lou Reed's death. And I thought they were very kind of moving, a moving elegy. Uh, the whole, I mean, his whole practice is very elegiac. And um, interesting to think about, um, he's a painter of experiential space as, uh, in contrast to um, the painters we were talking about earlier, which is really painting as sign, in a sense, or like sign painting. And um, so I really liked thinking about them in, in contrast with each other. Yes, and, the, and you mentioned the fan. Uh, he's a fan, obviously, of, of he's, many of his paintings in the past have been of record covers, and, and many of the paintings in this show revisit that idea, but actually sort of stepping back to show the the record, the LP, in um, um, an, a, a space in a in a lived-in space, um, and 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 engaging with this lived-in lived artifact, so that that adds an, an element too. Um, Barry, did you find yourself moved in the way Nora was? No, uh, no, I didn't. I didn't. I really didn't like the show at all, um, and. Uh, so much so that I would almost say, oh, maybe I have to give up liking David Bowie now, or, uh, you know, because um, 
Because this painter does. Because this painter does. And because there was some, because there's some, there's some attitude uh, involved in this kind of incredibly uh, kind of overworked paint surface that I just find, um, I don't know how to say it. I find uh, 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 that it just completely uh, keeps me outside of it. It's funny even to hear you say experiential because, you know, to me, I experience the space of Julia Rommel's paintings and I experience that space and I think, wow, you know, I, I wish I could, I wish I could look at this space every day. You know, I, I, I like this, you know, this is my idea of pleasure. And when I look at this, you know, the space, which is not the depicted space, but the kind of painting space of box paintings, uh, I, I just have a kind of visceral feeling that I don't want to, I don't want to go there and I don't want to be there. Um, it's because it's so, so imbued with, uh, the word struggle came up before, with, with a kind of useless struggle to me. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very visceral thing. Yeah, I mean, Drew, it seemed to me actually that they, they, he's a fan of Lou Reed and David Bowie, but he's clearly also a fan of Stanley Lewis and Leon Kossoff and School of London, and one thinks of the whole School of London ethos of, quote, the hard-won image. It, there is that slightly grubby, earnest quality in these paintings. Um, and I think that might be what Barry is allergic to. Maybe it's a post-London um, personal thing. Who knows? But um, what was your take on the show? Were you, are you more like Nora's or more like Barry's? Or well, I, I agree with you that he is engaged in a more kind of historical, kind of figurative tradition. Um, you know, and there are, there are elements of Kossoff and Auerbach, but as soon as he starts to get too gushy with the paint in a particular area, he steps back and he is aware that he doesn't quite want to go all the way into that. And um, so I, I thought that, you know, it, you know, this is a way, this is a, still a viable way to paint. There are a lot of people who are interested in it. And uh, you know it worked. I I had a little bit of trouble with the uh, the rock and roll stuff. Um, I I often have trouble with that, and I actually don't think he needed it. Um, and um, I, I felt distracted by the you know the Bob Dylan and the David Bowie, and felt bad, of course, about the other album covers that I couldn't figure out what they were. Uh, felt terrible about that. Um, <laughs> But again, I think that it's it's become, and I don't want to talk about the rock and roll thing, but I feel like it was so prevalent that we've come to a point where um, it's being trotted out as some kind of weird cred. And whether it's, you know, reading about what clubs Christopher Wool went to, in, you know, in, in, his, in the retrospective catalog, or whether it's, having to hear that Albert Olin was in a band or you know whatever it is, um, I just don't see how it adds to whether or not the art is good or bad. The, sm the large pieces I thought were quite good, the smaller pieces I thought would have been better without the record stuff. Um, I liked when he started to turp down the paint in the smaller pieces. Um, there 
was an interesting kind of textural range, and I thought it started to touch a little bit on what Merlin James does, and I find that that's very interesting. Um, so I'm I'm almost curious to think wonder does Barry like think he's, Merlin? He's uh, doing like putting all those uh, rock and roll records in there to get cred. He's he's being it's uh, almost unbearably honest. I mean, he's just painting his space. That's his that's his studio space. Yeah, so I don't I don't um, I don't want to I don't want to know about it. Then then don't look at it. Like, not, then go would away. You, would you like what? it better if it was classical music or something else <laughs> or? Uh, I think that classical music um, informs certain types of painting from the period that went just before it. Back then, painting was actually ahead um, of all musical um, movements by a considerable amount of time. And now we find ourselves, unfortunately, um, sort of seeding that prescient antenna, yeah, that nature that we had. And I guess it must have happened sometimes around the 60s or the 80s when, you know, I guess money, fashion, and art had sex in public, as somebody once said. Um, and, and now uh, we're running hand in hand, trying to catch up, feeling breathless and feeling kind of, oh no, I should, maybe I could be, have been a, you know, um, so whether it's somebody making a, so. I don't understand, you're moving the, the, away from that. I don't understand what you're talking about, though. You're moving away from the actual paintings. Like, let's talk about the paintings. What are you, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't see how the rock and roll um, uh, representations within the paintings actually uh, have anything to do stylistically or add anything to the tremendous, like, wonderful cultural debris that he was able to uh, depict in the studio space itself. I'm, so I'm I was off put by, I was off because, put uh, by because it. Because really, um, the, there's an assumption, I think you're projecting, I think you're seeing that he's using rock and roll, and so you're projecting uh, an idea that he is making a gambit by uh, referencing and accessing the energy of rock and roll as a cultural institution. Whereas in fact, I think his LP collection is just like Mirandi's jars. Uh, they're just things that are in his world. And it's a, it's a diaristic personal way of finding something to paint to pick up these objects that have a resonance for him. And then he paints them as things. I think they're things, they're not uh, references to uh, the cultural status of music. Yeah, I mean, well, granted, yeah. They, they seem tacked on to me. I mean, they're not keys, for one thing. I mean, uh, but, um, you know, most, I mean, if they're representations of the studio, most artists that I talk to say that when they're alone in the studio, they, they play music. And uh, why should it be other music than what he likes? I mean, I'm, I don't even want to defend him because, as I said, I don't like the paintings, but, but I can't, I have to defend him on this. It just yes. seems normal. It seems to be a cultural right to, to have your rock and roll. It's not like it's sex and drugs. We will take comments at the right time, Suzanne. Yes? Well, I think they're paintings about pleasure, so it's hard. If you don't like that music, yes, it might be really hard for you. If you don't like Bob Dylan, that might be very hard for you. But um, I don't know. I think they, for me, they, they're they like Vuillard paintings. I mean, these are, these are almost like 19th century paintings. They're French paintings. Um, so I, 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 had no problem with them. Well, they, no. are like, they are like the art paintings, and I do like the paintings, um, but I 
I, I, I just found myself being pushed away by the rock references because they seemed tacked on to me. And they didn't seem as central as... as like integral. It's like the, uh, the yellow of the sunflower, the yellow of Lou Reed's skin. It was this, this moment. I thought that was very beautiful. It was... Um, uh, it was like paint could be something else. It was sort of the opposite of John Zinzer's paint. I mean, this was like paint as, as like pure medium. Right, so perhaps it's a personal bugaboo. I'm clearly on the outside in this one. No, but I think your, your, your outside view is actually something, um, even if we don't share it, it's, I think, suggestive of um, a bigger debate. Because, in fact, I think on the two extremes of the panel, we're, although you don't agree on whether you like the paintings or not, and you don't agree on what the rock and roll means, uh, both of you are alienated from this painter because, in Barry's case, of the messiness and the grubbiness and the earnestness, both of the painting and the place, as it were, and, and in Drew's case, because of the cultural energy, the negative cultural energy for you, of his accessing and um, claiming, uh, so you feel claiming some kinship with uh, rock and roll. But could it just be that we're not supposed to necessarily like these paintings? Nora does like these paintings, but maybe actually the drama in these paintings is one that's, that's not about you liking it or wanting to be there or liking rock and roll or wanting to look at that space. Um, maybe he's just, he has, is actually engaged in something um, personal and painterly that's, um, that might be painful. I mean, it, it's, it's, paintings can be painful if you want. I find these paintings to be quite painful. They, they, um, they, they do speak of a kind of squalor and struggle. Um, and um, one, one has a sense of somebody creating a, 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 a world for themselves, but that's... Um, they have a kind of fortress feel. In, well, in time is there. I mean, that's that's the it's the pain of the day in day out. Um, the Poland Spring bottle is still there, and um, I mean, you it's it's the way like a Giacometti portrait. Like time is there, and and when time is there, death is there. And so I think that's maybe pain. I don't know. That's what I I kind of get that too. Formally, um, what I found most interesting about these paintings is when he gives us two views at once in these diptychs, which look like they've been uh, switched around at the last minute almost. They, they, they give this kind of strange um, fisheye quality on the world. Um, and so you've, you've got, um, in one diptych, you've actually got what seems pictorially to be the right-hand panel on the left-hand side. And that really is a big wrench. It feels that these are, there's a lot of vertigo in these paintings. I think they're kind of queasy paintings. and my own sort of feeling about his touch seems to be in touch with his vertiginous vision, which doesn't sound like a peon to them, but uh, it doesn't sound like a, I like them. Well, but it which is, I, it's the psychological space that he's trying to set up and that hard-won fight to make the paintings inside the studio and the accumulation and all the detritus. Um, so they go hand in hand, that, that fisheye 
Any idea of the lens that we're, we're considering to some extent, is he, how's the distortion coming about? And we think, and so he connects not just to the London school, but to uh, this idea, you know, going back to Van Eyck and then, you know, even recent dialogue about Vermeer and, and the lens. So um, he is part of a tradition and it is hard one and it is, a psychological space that 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 works. Of hard one, but I'm just I'm just I just can't convince myself that it's really that hard one. Because hard oneness can be is a trope, and and Giacometti, you know, Giacometti's Pentimenti are tropes of. I have struggled to make this painting. I am the embodiment of Merleau-Ponty's Cezanne. It took a hundred sittings. Blah blah blah. And that that is a it is a trope, and that. The school, uh, school of London painters, even the ones we love, the, uh, with Albach and, and Karlsdorf and Freud, that, that whole rhetoric of effort is encrusted into the layers of paint, isn't it? Well, I think there is eff it's effort mixed with, with pleasure, not effort mixed with suffering. There isn't suffering in these paintings. I think that that's might be the difference here. But, but, but the acid test, I mean, this isn't sort of uh, a superficial use of paint. He is actually... Uh, creating pictorial space, and so we can actually enter that picture window. So it's beyond just kind of going through the motions and trying to create the feel of, you know, r r rich, rich impasto. Have anything to do with that, uh, you know, uh, so-called struggle? I, uh, yeah, I'm just not. Uh, I just don't see it that way. Painterly painting doesn't always have to be about struggle. Maybe, maybe it's pleasure. I mean, it's, it's both. I don't know what's this. Why are there? Where this, what's, I mean, uh, why? I mean, when you talk about pleasure, I mean, they're they're of course, paint, but this is not. This is a particular kind of painterly painting, and uh, it. I do see it as the one that uh, David was talking about, and and not all sorts of other painterly paintings that don't have to do with. Uh, with that idea of struggle at all. After all, a painter, after Vuillard has been cited. Now, Vuillard can um, sort of engage with the painterly process that's not uh, a painterly process that Bach feel would seem to be suggesting he's also involved with. But Vuillard can simultaneously, this is the cake and eating it thing again, he can simultaneously, but it's actually... Actually, it's more of a kind of craft thing that I was regretting its absence in Leslie Wayne, in that uh, Vuillard can use the paint and his engagement with the paint to build up a convincing sense of uh, surface and depth. But he can also give us an utterly delectable surface, um, a decoration in the, in the noblest sense. And so um, to, to achieve a deep space and a convincing space and a convincing sense of being in space doesn't have to involve uh, grubby colors and fussy touch. So those grubby color and fussy touch are tropes, actually, that of a kind of painting that wants you to know that it worked hard. So I think that's possibly the problem with uh, Bock. But at the same time, it is, it's a convincing picture to me. Let's think about uh, let's think about our last show and um, with Herzog. 
The last time we were able to, we saw an installation of hers at LMAC project, it was very much the installation. It was uh, a, a very uh, total work of art. One really uh, felt an, an extraordinary kind of um, exhilarated claustrophobia in that small gallery, which was transformed into something a bit like Schwitter's Cathedral of Erotic Misery um, with uh, uh, a very complex, dense structure. She's done something very different in this show. She's given us, as it were, um, uh, a sort of souvenir of that sensation, but at the far end of the gallery. And most of the show are, uh, is comprised of her um, uh, collages and, and, and um, working of the materials that we see um, at, on the end wall, but in um, pictorially contained space and also uh, her transformed paper from Diodonne. Um, uh, Drew, how, how, does, how does this show measure up with um, her, her uh, track record for you? And, and, and how does it relate to some of the issues that we've been thinking about with uh, Wayne and, uh, um, and, and with Bach? Well, um, I think that she is um, on the forefront of people who are shaking up um, the in-between space of painting and sculpture and, uh, and installation. And I think she's doing it really successfully. I think that uh, this is, um, you know, fully, fully cooked stuff and that the longer you look at it, um, the more it kind of opens up to you. Um, and I was delighted to see that she's taken on this idea of the paper pieces. And uh, although they look very kind of casual in a sense in terms of their composition, um, I, uh, I found them playful but also kind of tough. A couple of them reminded me of uh, Moreau's kind of anti-paintings in the late 20s or early 30s. And um, there was an amazing uh, sense of uh, layering and compression that's going on in those paper pieces um, with the textile and the different types of paper, uh, some of it kind of pulpy and liquid and other just kind of uh, flinty and thin. So um, uh, this show really worked for me. I think it was uh, perhaps uh, perhaps my favorite show of, of the six. All right, Laura, uh, how, how would you rate it and, and what was your experience like of it? Um, well, don't have to rate it. Uh, tell, us, uh, tell us how it measured up. I mean, it, it was... It was fine and pleasant. I mean, I, I didn't. Some show, some art. There, um, there isn't that much language. That for me personally, I, I'm, um, feel inclined to to give to the art. Um, I can just experience it, or you know, I, I thought the collage, the uh, paper, um, or the fact that it was paper and not collage. At first, I thought it was collaged pieces put together, but then I, it was all one piece, and that's kind of interesting. But um, are are they are they like a Moreau painting? No, um, but that doesn't matter. Um, you know, it was it was pleasing. I mean, is that enough? I don't know. I mean, it was I uh, I thought it was interesting is sort of the uh, her installation and the softness of the, the blanket um, and kind of the, the roughness of the staples or how how those things were kind of coming together. I was always looking for things that could there could be kind of a space of tension or interest in the work. And for me, that was where that existed. Right, right. I think in a way, Barry, that, that um, 
they're not collages and that they were not made out of disparate forms that she then puts together in her studio, but the actual paper-making process is a kind of a painterly or collage process um, uh, with these Dieudonnet um, fabricated works. Um, how did you find yourself engaging with them? Uh, you know, I, I found the, the paperworks... Uh I found them to be attractive, but but I couldn't get that deeply engaged with them. And somehow I kept uh, thinking, uh, and maybe this is wrong of me to to do so, uh, but um, I kept thinking about the show of much smaller uh, paper pieces, which I think were also made with Diodone, uh that uh, Mark Strand had with uh, the Laurie Bookstein Gallery uh, last year. And which I thought were so powerful and so um, uh, they had such a f more forceful and in a way uh, sometimes uh, paradoxical use of space. Uh, and so I kept looking at these and kind of thinking, oh, compared to those Mark Strand ones, they seem so much, uh, they seem kind of underdetermined. In, in a way, you know, I think she's on to something there, but she hasn't quite uh, made something big enough or deep enough uh, out of it, at least in, in, in comparison with, with what I'd seen in this other show a while back. But don't you think Strand is, is really a, a classic old fact? I mean, coming to, coming to collage from, from the literary background, that they are kind of very satisfying little nuggets of um, classic modernism, and that maybe, as Drew is suggesting, um, uh, that Herzog is actually kind of involved in uh, questioning support uh, in a way that doesn't encourage that neat gestalt, that mm. powerful Well, image. I wouldn't call it a neat, but, uh, and I would say that, look, I mean, yes, I mean, Strand is a guy in his 80s. He was a student of Joseph Albers, et cetera, et cetera. He, he has a, a more direct uh, connection uh, in that sense to, uh, let's say, uh, some of the sense of uh, discovery of, of some earlier generations of abstract artists. But, um, uh, but I would never say that he wasn't he was very questioning and very, um, uh, in, at times, very funny and tricky in his in his approach to uh, uh, to these things that go back in a way to his youth. And I think he has a lot of, lot in common with with artists of Alana Herzog's generation and even younger generations. I don't think it's I don't think you can put it down to that exactly. I think that there was just not. Uh, the same sense of, uh, what can I say, uh, determination about what she was doing with rather similar uh, material. But I, I think, uh, you, what can I say? I think that there, it's not that I don't think there's nothing there either. Right, right. Um, Drew, would you, would you relate her to um, more to a, um, um, you, you were suggesting that she's at the forefront of something new. So um, is, it, is, it, uh, is it simply a mistake to think of them in terms of uh, the, the, the kinds of poetics that Barry is, is mentioning in relation to, for instance, Mark Strand? We don't have to make it about Mark Strand. Just um, 
of, of more, of, of tighter, stronger, more forceful, more willful um, collage construction? Is that, is that, is it, is it that she's actually consciously doing something different or is, or do you think she just isn't as strong as, as them? I think she is doing um, uh, something different, that she's uh, uh, kind of wild and she's throwing a lot of caution to the side and that um, uh, I could see these paper pieces uh, being presented perhaps next time without frames and uh, even on uh, pedestals where we can see, you know, recto verso. Um, uh, not unlike the way um, another uh, uh, a painter, Donna Nelson, has been challenging pre-established pre, uh, uh, pre notions of what painting should be. Um, I think it's particularly interesting that uh, this kind of like, you know, elbowing out and, you know, challenging the painterly, you know, the painting tradition um, uh, is... Uh, primarily being done, you know, almost since the 70s by women. Um, and I think that Nelson and Herzog and, uh, and Leslie Wayne, um, certainly with her earlier work, um, but in, in this recent stuff too, is all part of this kind of exploration of, uh, of the new physical uh, possibilities and relationships um, w within painting. But I, I, I do think that Herzog does go back to early modernism. Um, I understand that Strand has an antecedent and and uh, Albers, et cetera. But I think that uh, even these uh, wood, pa these panels, the way the wall panels come out, there's this kind of uh, push and pull that's happening. They've broken free of the wall. It's almost like, um, you know, the, the march of the wooden panels coming at you. Um, and uh, it almost reminded me a little bit of those uh, documentary photographs of Malevich's uh, early installation, um, yet in addition to sort of like bringing this into our space and kind of, you know, disrupting that familiarity with where we should be in relation to the work, um, she's bringing in the tension with the staples and she's embedding the fabric into the wall and then she violently rips it out, these delicate uh, blankets which are pastel colored and very beautiful. and. Sometimes they're still in the wall, and other times, you know, they just take part of the wall with them. And uh, I find that, you know, really interesting and uh, and uh, involved me totally. Fantastic, great. Well, let's see what our audience has to tell us about um, our last three shows about Wayne, Bach, and Herzog. And just um, as it comes, we're not going to do it in any order, so. If you could uh, raise your hands, I can see one in the top, in the far end of the hall. But let's, Carol, I leave it to you to, to see what you see and pass the mic. Doesn't all have to be in row two left. <laughs> Barry, you described Gideon Bach's painting as a useless struggle. And I was wondering if you could give an example of a painter whose struggle is more useful and why? You know, if, if you come up with a good painting, then the struggle that went into, uh, into making it is rewarded. Um, but I, as I say, I guess I'm just not sympathetic to what I call the rhetoric of struggle and, um, you know, uh, David uh, mentioned uh, 
Giacometti and Freud as people who have this kind of uh, uh, idea and maybe I'm more sympathetic to Giacometti and less so to Freud. Uh, you know, I think about the idea that, oh, you know, you look at a Freud portrait and you're kind of made aware that this person had to, uh, you know, sit for hundreds of hours and, and uh, watch this thing come and go and come and go and so on. And I think that's fine. But I happen to know that um, the people who sat for Whistler also had to uh, uh, sit for the same hundreds of hours. They couldn't bear it. But when you look at the Whistler painting, you're, you're not shown the struggle, you're shown the result. And the same uh, with the Matisse painting. Every time, I look at a, every time I look at a Freud painting, I want to tell him, just, just go look at Matisse for a year and forget about all this. And, you know, I guess I want to say the same to, uh, to, um, Gideon, to, Bach. to, to Gideon Bach. Uh, you know, you can do the thing a hundred times, but if you, if you try and wipe it off and start clean each time, then you, you have a different feeling in the end result than, it, than if you uh, feel like you have to overwhelm uh, the... The viewer with the 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 evidence of your struggle instead of incorporating it into into the final result. It's a tug on our conscience, as it were. Yes, yes. Um, this was something that was said uh, actually also about Gideon Bach, but it's not so much about the painting, but much more was, was said was the uh, Mirandi comparing that to LP covers, or at least his use of vases. Now I'm just curious: can we see record covers separate because they're kind of uh, Still lives always had symbols within it, but we still, they were objects that were translating light or form. Record covers hold something different for us. I mean, there's a relationship that you immediately see, whether it's rock and roll, I don't want to get in rock and roll conversation, but I mean, I'm just seeing when you see a record cover, you see something, you, you're immediately attached to certain cultural aspects to it. And so my question, I guess, is, is there a separation? Can it be seen as a still life? Much, much like a vase of Morandi and over and over, painted over and over again. Well, I, I don't see why it can't. I think the interesting contrast between with Bach would be, or the interesting artist to think about would be, R.B. Kitai with his series in our time, where he took um, all his favorite pamphlets and essays and books from his library. And by favorite, I don't just mean books he approved of. He had uh, Henry Ford's uh, The Jewish Problem, a Jewish Question, and he had um, all kinds of rather problematic books on the, the white slave trade and so on and so forth. But he just loved the, the look, the feel. Uh, they had resonance for him. They were his sort of lexicon. And so these screen prints, they're kind of literal screen prints of the covers, but blown up to a certain scale, they become an object that transcends the original subject through the uh, prism of his sensibility and his concerns. So I think it's possible that Bach could achieve the same with a series of LP covers. I mean, the LP covers could be portraits, or they could be still life motifs, or they could be a diary. So I don't, I think they could fit into different genres, but I don't see actually why any, um, mass, any object that's in an artist's space isn't potentially a still life object. In a way, you could say Perlstein um, makes still life objects of his sitters, and 
makes portraits of his toy collection. So there's an artist who really bends the, bends the definitions. This is actually procedural. Um, for a couple of uh, sessions, uh, David, you had the panelists recommend shows that are on that were not under discussion, which I have found very helpful. I was wondering if you cared to reinstate this today. Well, thank you for the hint. Um, <laughs> thank you for the idea. U usually I would say that that is something we do when we've had four exhibitions that we all dislike or when we've ended, ended on a sour note, I just try to end the evening on a positive note. Um, but it, I would say that actually uh, uh, we have uh, uh, all, um, all, everyone's had something good to say about one show at least, so I, I'm not sure. But you never know. We've got another five minutes. Maybe I'll surprise the panel in four minutes' time. <laughs> Um, may I just add that in some quarters, LP covers are actually considered an art form? Yes, absolutely, as are vases, <laughs> as are uh, jugs. But yes, absolutely, you're right. They are, it's, it's art about art. But it is, yes. Uh, can, I, can you, well, that's what we're doing now. So yes, go ahead, take the mic, ask a question. I this is the second time I've been here. I enjoy this. Okay. I just wonder how, how you pick, maybe you, everybody here knows this, but how do you pick the shows that you're going to? Oh, right. Okay. Well, we, I have criteria for what's an eligible show, and an eligible show is one that's uh, up at least a couple of weeks before uh, the panel meets so that the audience has a chance to see them. We prefer solo exhibitions to group shows. We like it to be a recent body of work, not a retrospective. And it needs to be somebody who hasn't been considered on the review panel before. And so when we get down to a short list, which in the case of uh, this evening was down to about 80 shows, uh, that uh, short list is sent to the three guest panelists. And um, I ask them to, say, nominate a half dozen shows at least that they would be uh, motivated to speak about. I then see uh, who's on. I then sort of curate from there. That's how it happens. I think you should add that we haven't seen the shows yet when you've asked us to select them because usually the shows are just about to be opening or something like that. Exactly. So it's, that's very important. Thanks, Barry. So that the, the, it has to be the element of surprise. And often some people, uh, a critic says, oh, you know, I've, I've loved Gideon Bock in the past. Let's put Gideon Bock down and then goes and says, oh, my God, he's painting LP covers. And so it ends up that nobody likes that, that artist. So we have sort of for people dissing some poor chap or woman. And that's why I then say at the last minute, oh, could everybody recommend their favorite show right now? That's how that happens. Okay, uh, procedure, fascinating. But I think there's some, there's some heated, there's probably some debate still to be had on, on Wayne, for instance, who, who uh, was a subject of some controversy. Any last comments on, on Wayne? Or is the evening waning? Yes. Uh, I don't think there's any point, uh, yes, uh, good, listen, ladies and gentlemen, um, what can we recommend? We can recommend the art fairs, or we can recommend the Biennale. You can come back and hear the Biennale next time with Donald Cuspit, Joseph Wolin, and who? <laughs> 
And Colleen Asper. Colleen Asper, Joseph Wolin, and Donald B. Cuspit will debate the merits of the Biennale, the biennial, I beg your pardon, on April the 4th. We'd rather be in Venice, but uh, we'll look forward to seeing you then. Thank you.